Amen. All right. Well, we don't, we don't, uh, if you, if you've been around here on like special Sundays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, um, today's 4th of July, Independence Day, um, we don't put, we don't really do a lot. When we come to church, uh, we, we pretty much just focus on worship through song and then the, the, the opening of the Word of God and the teaching of the Word of God. So don't get thrown off. We are very patriotic and I believe it's super important that we pray for our nation, pray for our leaders, and also that we give the Lord thanks for the freedoms we have. I like my coffee black and my tea in the harbor, amen? Like, I'm just saying, like, but, but uh, that's not what Sundays are for, so um, uh, we're going we're gonna to get right into the Word and, um, and dive in in First Peter 3, second week in this chapter. Now, we've decided we're going to slow down a little bit based on popular opinion a lot of people are saying, man, we're going too fast. Y'all got to slow down. And we, we used to do this thing where we would go so slow that we would spend a few years in a book of the Bible. And then people were, would say, you should go faster. <laughs> uh, and we, we should have gone faster. Uh, so then, uh, then we, we've, I think we found a pretty good speed going through Daniel. But uh, then we tried to keep doing that speed through First Peter. And those two books, it, you, you got to slow down a little maybe for First Peter. So we're going we're gonna to back off the throttle a little bit stretch it out, slow it down, not by a lot, but just um, like this text that we were going to cover tonight, we're actually breaking into two sermons. So um, yeah, so, and, and if you're visiting, we're not one of those churches where you can look and see where we're, where we're going to be six Sundays from now or 10 Sundays from now. That's not right. That's not wrong. I'm not saying, but we just tend to, um, we got a full-time guy coming. I don't know if you've heard. Uh, it's going to make life a little easier <laughs> for, for us. But uh, a lot of times, man, we like to have the freedom. Like, we start studying the book of the Bible. I don't, I don't do good in boxes, man, like at all. Like, maybe to a fault. And you start, like, boxing it in, and, it, and we felt like we need to just slow this down a little bit. So we're slowing it down. All right, First Peter. Also, we're going to have a Duncan tonight. Now, there ain't going to be no sprinkling going on. We're going we're gonna straight up have a baptism. It's going to be awesome. So I got a buddy. I got a bunch of buddies. We, a lot of us have uh, this group of friends that are all Department of Defense contractors, and they're all, um, they're all in the Marine Corps back in the day. And, and uh, Mr. Ellis is a Marine Corps veteran. We got several veterans in our church. But uh, I remember talking to those guys one time about, um, I said, how hard is boot camp really, you know, because it doesn't seem, I mean, it uh, I've never been through it. And, and they said, well, you know, you get there and you're, you're 18 years old and you're convinced that they don't want you to succeed, right? Like they're, they're screaming at you and getting you up in the middle of the night and making you do crazy stuff. And it seems like that you're going to fail at this. But ultimately, the, the Marine Corps boot camp, like passing rate is in the 90s, like 96% or something. So ultimately, their goal is for you to succeed, but they're not going to make that su succeeding easy, you see. Uh, you can apply those principles to parenting. You, we don't want to just give everything to our kids. We want to make them learn how to work and be responsible. Well, sometimes in, the, in, in our walk with the Lord, we need to be reminded that as he's taken us on this journey from salvation through this process of growing in the image of Jesus, that the end result is that we will be made like Jesus. Like one day we're going to be glorified. There's, there's this future hope that we have that the scripture even puts momentary afflictions in the context of this future hope. But in the process that we, we know of from scripture is called sanctification, right? Y'all familiar with that word? It's the process of 
the Christian journey and that process is us becoming more like Jesus and it's a it's a process that sometimes is painful sometimes is strenuous sometimes is stressful sometimes you will endure suffering and sometimes you'll endure persecution and for our like in our in our um, experience we're not we've never had to experience physical bodily persecution but right now we're seeing a lot of ridicule for our faith we need to remember that Jesus will complete the work that he starts in us and even when times are difficult God's still got us on this journey and that's where we have to remind ourselves that first Peter and second Peter these books are written to what Peter calls exiles and this is why we followed our study in Daniel with this study exiles this is not our home we're not we're not for this world ultimately. Let's dive in. We're going to begin in verse 8. We're going to go down through verse 17. We're just going to work through the, the text. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So in, in, in the body of Christ, unity and community are critical if we're going to endure suffering. In the body of Christ, unity and community are critical if we're going to endure suffering. Think about, um, think about with the right relationships and support, hardship is handled much better in our lives. If you've had to go through something alone versus you've had to go through something with strong support, there's a, there's a big difference in those two experiences. And in the body of Christ, there should be unity and community so that we endure hardships together, maybe sometimes corporately, but then oftentimes individually as certain people, uh, even, even as we pray for the Watsons tonight, are going through a hard time or a trial, there's unity within the body of Christ. Now, he, he gives us five ad, admonitions on what this looks like. He says, have unity of mind, which doesn't mean you're going to always, I think this is an important caveat, doesn't mean you're always going to agree on every little thing. I was so refreshed this week to hear R.C. Sproul, who's one of my favorites, um, and, uh, and he was talking about a sharp disagreement that he and John MacArthur have on the last part of this chapter, which we're not going to get into tonight. We'll get into that next week. And I thought, oh, that's great, because both those guys are really smart. Both those guys really love Jesus. Both those guys are a whole lot better preachers than we are. Both those guys are, are like, have written lengthy volumes of commentaries, and here's something they don't get along on, but... It's not that they don't get along, they just don't agree with an interpretation of Scripture, but they still have unity, right? They have, they, so, so being unified and having a unity of mind doesn't mean you're going to agree on everything. It just doesn't. We were talking yesterday, I was talking with somebody, I don't even remember who, about we're living in a time right now where if I don't agree with you, then we're enemies. Do you, you feel that in our society right now? You voted for the other guy, then we're enemies. No, we why? Would we have to be? Like... Kennedy and Reagan were playing golf and getting sandwiches together in the 80s, you know, like, why, what is, the, there's this identity politics, there's this me against you, there's this cancel culture, well, that has no place in the church, even when we have some disagreements and differences, so it's unity of mind is the idea that we're bound together by a common mission, which is to proclaim the gospel, make disciples, serve one another, love one another, and as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, submit to one another. Scripture teaches us to have the same mind that is in Christ Jesus. Then it says, be sympathetic. Now, some people are really sympathetic people. Some people are not. Some people, true or false, you have some friends that if you get hurt, you want that friend there. Other friends, I hope that guy's nowhere around because he's going to laugh at me. 
It doesn't matter how bad you're bleeding. doesn't matter how misplaced that bone is that's broken. You're getting laughed at if you did something stupid. I remember me and Little one time went to a NASCAR race. That's right. Welcome to the South. If you're not from here, it's a pastime here. We went to a NASCAR race up in Bristol. And we had to park way off and uh, just big steep hill. I'm, I'm talking about steep. I'm talking about mountain steep. And it's about maybe 50 yards long. Well, if you've ever been to a NASCAR race and you didn't drink, you were the only one. Literally. So Little and I, we sat there sober and, and unalcoholed the whole time. And, and as, as the group around us got increasingly intoxicated, I remember the guy in front of me at the beginning, every time, you know, his, I think it was Jeff Gordon would come by, the guy would stand up and he'd show him how many friends he had, you know, and like, like he's cussing and screaming by, the, by, by about 100 laps in, you know, the guy would stand up and by the time he'd get to his feet, they had unmade about two laps, and then he'd flop back down, you know. And then about 300 laps in, he's just kind of throwing, you know, his fingers up. And then, and then by the end, he was passed out like he's done. And so, I remember we got outside, and we sat at the bottom of this hill, and we watched intoxicated people fall down that hill for an hour and a half. True story. And I, we had laughed so much that I said, we have got to leave now. I can't. I'm sick. My stomach's hurting. I'm talking about... People fell for an hour. Not one person made it. Not one. 100% attrition rate. It was wonderful. I've thought about going back on Bristol Race Weekend. It was wonderful. But, but like when, when we think about being sympathetic, there's, there's, like, there's that tendency you might have to like laugh at somebody's calamity or there's that tendency you might have to coddle and overwhelm somebody with, like there's some people that are so, so uh, compassionate, sympathetic, kind and and you like to be around those people you know you get a boo-boo you're like mm, let's see do I, I remember when I was in elementary school there's just one teacher you knew if you got busted up when you went to her she's gonna make it you know she's gonna make you feel good about yourself so when, when the scripture says we're to be sympathetic it just means we need to ge- uh, demonstrate genuine concern for one another uh, I always think of Romans 12 15 it says we're to rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep I want to give you a real quick right here Two, um, two mechanisms or two triggers for the mechanism um, of, of being sympathetic. One is pray for each other, and two is spend time together. You ever, you ever have somebody you just, the more you spend time with them, the more you begin to realize they're in a difficult situation and you become sympathetic toward that person. Pray for one another, spend time together. Next, he tells us to love like brothers. He had mentioned this back in chapter 1, verse 22. This is a genuine brotherly affection that we have in the church. Then he says we're to be compassionate, tenderhearted. The Greek word here is really strong. Uh, you've, you may have heard this before. It, it's the idea of not, when we talk about the heart, we mean like the center of a person's being. And in Greek, uh, in Greek like terminology, there was this idea of even deeper into your like bowels, words literally like intestines. Um, I didn't write it, so hope that's not offensive, but that's, that's what it means. It's like saying, I love you and care about you from the deepest part of who I am. So just be compassionate, be tenderhearted. And then he says, be humble. Peter seen the ultimate example of humility in the way Jesus humbled himself and, and even the night that Jesus um, wash the feet of the disciples. So these virtues will make for an incredibly strong church. I want you to imagine a church in which so many have been hurt by Christians that come to a church and receive healing because of these characteristics of that church. It'd be awesome. Verse 9 it says, Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 
For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So Jesus told us to love our enemies on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the idea is that we don't settle injuries and insults on our own terms, but that we show kindness, we show blessing. We really, I think, being reminded that um, we're going to receive an inheritance from the Lord and that we're to share in each other's lives and that we're to be kind, that we're to be uh, loving, that we're to be a blessing to others. But then he also, he uses this idea of an inheritance through, like throughout the, the study of First Peter. And, and I think it's good to be reminded that an inheritance is something that's received in that cultural context by a son or daughter. So we're blessing one another, we're loving one another as fellow heirs with, with Christ, as brothers and sisters. Again, this is the unity of the church is seen through the compassion that we have towards each other. Like we should care about each other. We should actually love each other. Somebody, I remember a, a, not long ago, a kid was at our house, and he, was, he spent a few days with us. And, and at one point, we're sitting around the table, and I was like, I think I said something like, man, it's crazy around here. And he said, yeah, but I like being here. It seems like everybody here actually likes each other. <laughs> and I said, is that not how it is at your house? He's like, oh, no, 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 about an hour, and then everybody goes their separate ways. And like, I, I've, I've noticed a lot of times... I'm, I mean, a lot of times when I preach in churches, and I preach in a lot of churches and a lot of places, and when church ends, I'm talking about 10 minutes. Like, I've had oftentimes, this has happened to me very recently, that I'm asked to step outside because they're locking it up because I'm still in a conversation with someone. And so the idea of being in a community, wanting to be together, I'm like, like loving each other, and remembering that we're going to receive a blessing and inheritance from the Lord because of our sonship. Verse 10, and he's going to quote from Psalm 34. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he says, love life and see good days. Even in the middle of difficult times, we can experience joy and fullness and pleasure, but there are two things that sort of stand out and get in the way of that, two things that will get in the way of loving life and seeing good days. I want you to think about this in your own personal experience. Is this true? These are the two things that will often make a day go from good to not good. Number one, speaking evil. Speaking evil, you ever, been, you ever been having a good experience and then something is said, a harsh word is said, crosswords, and all of a sudden the whole experience changes. Speaking evil, the tongue is so destructive and it's often spoken of in Scripture. It's kind of speaking. This is a good reminder that we need to be careful what we say because of the impact our words will have. And then he says, uh, he uses the, the, the idea of being deceitful being deceitful this is so so think of negativity like like I want you to think like self-evaluate right here I think this is real important that that we that we internalize this and ask yourself the hard question and do the self-evaluation am I negative am I grumbling do I murmur do I slander do I gossip do I complain do I do I speak ugly do I use dirty language or perverse speak is there a lot of negativity, criticism? Think about that. Like just self-evaluate. When you're interacting with somebody, are you projecting life into that conversation because your words are powerful and your words bring life? Or do you tend to grumble or complain or murmur or criticize? Y'all, this is toxic in our society. It's toxic in our society. It's, I mean, just, just 
Think about this. If you're, if you're, if your circle of influence and friends are for the most part positive towards one another, that is very much the exception. And I'm not on social media. One of the reasons I'm not on social media is because of the toxicity. I can't handle it emotionally. I get so worked up if I, if I was, was reading the stuff that gets put there. But in the body of Christ, our speech should be seasoned with salt. We should encourage one another. We should love one another. We should, we should speak positively even when difficulty you know, or hardship is in front of us. Um, it, it, like, like the way we say, what we say, the way we communicate with our words matters. Matters. Christians, this, like the scripture talks about, it gets real specific with like us being people who speak the truth. Do you lie? Do you exaggerate? Do you, are you negative? If somebody says something, is your automatic response to be negative? Now think about this. So I'm just, I'm, I really want you to self-evaluate even as you're thinking right now, listening to this. Because this is a problem that most of us have. It's just a reality. Like we have the tendency to do that. I, um, um, I think it's important that we examine ourselves turn away from evil and do good let him seek peace and pursue it verse 12 the lord is always watching us I remember um I remember when i was a kid i'd be out there man i'd be playing basketball and my, my my i had a basketball goal it came from the landfill man it was like it had been it was one of those ones you could roll around i thought that was cool my dad said i got you a portable basketball goal i was like man i, I was thinking about them ones in the in the in, you know like in the omni it rolled <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about? Hydraulic. I'm like, oh, oh, oh yeah. My dad, came talk, that thing was in like nine pieces. He got it at the landfill. He put that together, got some new galvanized hardware, and got that thing built up. It was about 10 foot 9 inches. <laughs> if you could shoot on that thing, man, you were money in the gym. The hoop, I'm sure, was smaller too. And I get out there, I'd shoot on that thing, and I had to put cinder blocks on the back of it so it wouldn't fall over. And I remember getting out there and shooting, and I would think an airplane would fly over. Now, y'all, be honest if you did this. And I would think, I wonder if Jordan's on that airplane. I wonder if Michael Jordan is watching. I wonder if Dean Smith is watching me right now. I know Sean did this. He was a Carolina fan. What if Dean Smith's on? Shake and bake. Then I remember I went to, uh, I went to the, uh, the uh, Asheville Civic Center. They had the um, Southern Conference Basketball Tournament. I went out there, and when we walk in, I was in the ninth grade. I remember we walk in the front door, and we buy a program. And I gave my dollar, got the program. The guy said, congratulations, you just bought the 1,000th program. You get to come shoot at halftime. I was like, this is it. You know, like, I know Jordan ain't watching this tournament, but there's some, good, there's some solid ball, you know. And I thought, in my mind, I imagined, I'm going to go down there, and I'm going to make this free throw. And when I make it, all seven coaches of the Southern Conference basketball teams at the time, Appalachian State, Western Carolina, Marshall, that was this old SOCON. They're going to all want to talk to me before I leave this building today when they, see, when they see my money stroking them nylons. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, so, so like I'm imagining this. I'm in this imaginary world, and, I'm, and I go, and I, man, I'm going to tell you what. I was a 92% free throw shooter in high school, and I airballed that sucker because <laughs> I, I stepped up to the line, and it, it's, you know, I don't know, what's Asheville Civic Center, four or 5,000 people, but right behind the backboard, them stupid Marshall fans had these green water weenies, and they're like doing this with them, and it's all doing this, you know, those, those uh, water noodles, and I was like, are you kidding me? And I airballed it. I was so humiliated. It's like, but but think, of, think of, okay, think of a car where, um, okay, let's, let's, do, let's all look 
at the windows. Let's not do a car. Let's do this building. The windows with the shades, we are able to see out. But when you're outside, you may not be able to see in because of the way those shades work. Okay, so, so there's this idea that God is in a position and he literally is watching us. Like he cares about it. Now, this is a good thing for a number of reasons. One reason it's really good is for our own personal accountability of holiness. Like, like what I do in, the, in, like in my alone time, I'm not alone as a child of God. Like there's an accountability factor here. There's, there's this reality that the Spirit of God lives in me, but that the eyes of the Lord are on me. That's good. Also, it's good when I'm having um, a struggle with anxiety or, or fear or some overwhelming thing is controlling my joy to recognize that the Scripture says that the Lord literally, the psalmist writes, what is man that you are mindful of him? Do you stop and think that the creator of the world, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of life is mindful of you? Like he thinks about you. He knows your name. He literally knows the number of the hairs on your head. He knows your DNA. He, he wove you together like in your mother's womb. It's like, like God cares for us. We don't serve a distant God, but sometimes, and, and, and he's in a position where it doesn't feel like we can see him, and so we assume that we, because we don't lay eyes on him, we forget that he sees us, and we act like Adam and Eve in the garden running and hiding and trying to cover ourselves, and this is a reminder that, man, God sees us. And his Lord is, the Lord's face is set towards us. And, and he sees us and hears us. And when we're living in obedience and righteousness, then we are in harmonious communication with the Lord. The Lord sees everything, including that which is evil. As believers, this is a call to accountability and obedience. And it's comforting to know that the Lord will judge the wickedness of those who do evil. Let's Two responses for the believer. Number one, this should motivate us to honor the Lord knowing that he is always watching, always sees us, he's paying attention. And number two, it should comfort us knowing that the Lord is watching all things and that he will call all people into account for their actions. He will make all wrongs right. He will bring to justice all injustices. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So he's, he's, he's talking about, um, Peter's writing about fear and humility. The, 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 the opposite, okay, the opposite of pride is not humility. The opposite of pride is fear. So pride is that emotion or state of mind that sets me in, an author, in a self proclaimed authority against God. Like pride says, I'm in charge. I'll do what I want to do. And then, then it manifests itself a number of ways. It could be self-preservation or, or like a sense of entitlement or a refusal to take responsibility. But ultimately, pride sets me up against God. The opposite of that is not humility. The opposite of that is fear, a fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord produces humility when I act and walk in that fear. As Christians, we're to walk in a fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, the Scripture says, is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Now, let's unpack these verses here. The Scottish reformer John Knox said, With God on his side, man is always in the majority. 
This is similar to the question Paul asks in Romans 8.31 when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? There's a rhetorical question. I'm going to nerd. I'm going to get just a little bit nerdy right here. We need to drill into the semantics and the, and the verbiage here just a little bit in verses 13 and 14. He begins with a rhetorical question. Who is there to harm you? Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for uh, what is good? There's, there's this progression that begins with that rhetorical question. Okay, so let's Follow this progression through these two verses. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is doing good? No suffering in this life will take the blessing that awaits us as Christians. When you suffer, look to Jesus and look to the future promises he has given you. And the second part of the question in verse 13 is a conditional clause. Look at the second part of the question if you are zealous for what is good. What does that mean? What do I mean when I say that? The implication is that if I live doing evil, then I'm responsible for the consequences and have only myself to blame. But if I live in obedience to the Lord and in turn suffer for that, I can know that God stands next to me and strengthens me and will give me what I need to endure that. We don't have to be afraid. We remember what awaits us. Here's a challenging word from the Juan Sanchez commentary. He's a pastor in Austin, Texas. Can you imagine how emboldened Christians would be if we only believed what Peter is saying? How would your life, your conduct, and your words be different if you really did not fear anything because you knew that the worst that can happen cannot happen? You cannot lose God's love for you. So you don't have to fear anything. You can't lose God's love. The conjunction but at the beginning of verse 14 is not there for contrast, but to help us understand verse 13. Okay, listen to what Schreiner says. There's a better word that he would use here, and that word is indeed. So at the beginning of verse 13, so let's read it this way. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Indeed, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. This is a powerful and wonderful thing to understand. He's saying that even in the midst of suffering, in fact, always in the midst of suffering, the Christian is receiving blessing and reward. He's saying even this present suffering brings current blessing, even though there's a greater future blessing when God will reward his people. Why, do, why is this important? Because I think sometimes we sell ourselves short when you're, listen to me, when you're going through hard times, when you're in the middle of a trial, when you're in the middle of a struggle, when the waves are crashing around you, the tendency is to go, well, but one day it's going to be better. No, no, no. Like right now, God's blessing you in the middle of that. That's what he's saying. It's not like, like don't, don't wish the time away. You ever hear somebody say that? Like, don't wish the time. Like we have, we have this hope and this promise that yes, in the future, there is a time where there'll be no more sin and we'll have perfect knowledge and we're going to be made like Jesus. But that doesn't mean that in the momentary affliction, we should only think about the future. Otherwise, we'll not learn from the momentary affliction and we won't experience what in that moment will be the richest, deepest experience you might ever have with Jesus. Like, like we can't wish the suffering away. We shouldn't wish the suffering away. We go through the suffering recognizing that God is with us. God is for us. So we're going to be just fine. And we can know him in this moment in the most personal way. Don't fear what people might do to you. Deliverance may not come in the way that you think. He gives us two commands in the middle of this. The first one is in verse 14. Do not fear what might be done to you. But then in verse, we move transition to verse 15, and he says, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, this is 
uh, we get into verse 15. This is a real familiar verse for Christians. Uh, let me read it and see if this is familiar to you. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is, uh, I, want, I want to pause right here. I want to consider something. This verse is most often used as, a, as an apologetic. What an apologetic is is a verse that, that encourages, uh, an apologetic is a defense of the faith. So oftentimes we, we've used this verse maybe a little bit out of context where we say, hey, 1 Peter 3.15, you should always be able to debate an atheist or argue for the cosmological argument for the existence of God or understand the teleological argument. For the, like, like you should understand presuppositional apologetics, 1 Peter 3.15. Okay, well, in the context of what we're studying, we've just gone over the last three weeks from submission to now suffering and we're in the middle of this idea of as a Christian what's it look like to suffer in this world and particularly to embrace the blessing of God in the middle of suffering that's the context this comes to us in so let's let's think about this this verse is not first and foremost about apologetics and a philosophical theological or or historic defense of the Christian faith don't get me wrong and make no mistake we need to be prepared to defend what we believe. This is important for our own strengthening of faith when we come under attack. I would even say that at the root of the massive shift we are seeing with even prominent Christians walking away from historic Christian teaching led by progressives, there is a lack of foundational apologetics or ability to defend the faith. We need to be able to fight for what we believe in our own hearts and minds, not with the world. Our faith must be tested by the fires of doubt and maybe even unbelief. And for the man or woman who has put their true faith and their true trust in Jesus, those fires will be quenched by an insatiable and consuming desire to exalt Jesus, to worship him, to thank him for who he is and what he has done, and to see him as the glorious King of kings and Lord of lords, the wonderful counselor, the almighty God who dwells in unapproachable light and on whom no man may look and live. He is worthy of our praise and should be set apart in our hearts and minds as altogether greater and better and purer and more beautiful and more awesome than anything in this world that will ever be offered to us or be presented to us. Set Christ apart as better. He's better than the suffering. He's better than the easy times. He's greater, but he has to be set apart in your affections, in your mind, in our perception of reality. Christ is to be set apart. Christ possesses a different place in our lives than anything else. Set him apart as Lord. If there's ever, uh, I'm sorry, but here in this context, verse 15 is not about debating and winning a philosophical argument. It's a call to persecuted and suffering Christians to stand firm in the face of that persecution and recognize that our hope is in the one who is greater. The promise of our future rests in a sovereign God whose name is Jesus, who can and will deliver us through anything this world will ever throw at us. Nothing we go through in this life will separate us from the love of God, as Paul reminds the Roman Christians in Romans chapter 8. No height, no depth, no persecution, no suffering will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We may consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in Christ Jesus. When the Bible teaches of the heart, it is a reference to the central part of a man's existence. 
Proverbs 4.23 says, the heart is the wellspring of life. Simon Kistemacher, a commentator, says, when the heart is controlled by Jesus, the believer dedicates his entire life to him. Then the Christian is safe from fear and is able to defend himself against his opponents. So when Peter says, set apart Christ Jesus in your heart, he's saying at the core, the essence of who you are as a human, fix your affections on Jesus. And nothing that this world throws at you will overwhelm you. Like, no, you will endure suffering. What are we going to do when they close? Well, you'll endure suffering. You'll endure it. You'll be fine. You'll have communion and fellowship with Jesus in the midst of it. Peter knew what it was like to give all of himself to Jesus, and he knew what it was like to do that after denying that he even knew the Lord. Think about this. Peter knew what wholehearted devotion and consecration to Jesus was, but he also knew he also knew that that alone would not sustain you in your hour of persecution. Peter, swearing the foulest, vilest of language, cursing against the name of Jesus in the face of ridicule from teenage girls. What kind of man is that? It's a man who at that point had not set apart Christ Jesus as Lord in his heart. That's why I think he writes this with such conviction and such passion. And we've all been there where you walk away from a circumstance or a conversation or situation and you go, what happened in that moment was I wasn't fixed on who Jesus is and I got caught up in the cares of that moment. Peter gets this, man. To, to, to think that he's writing this in context of all that he's been through. Peter rejected Jesus, and he denied Jesus. But as he wrote of in, in, in chapter 1, because of the mercy of the Lord, he was changed through the power of the resurrection of Jesus. He says, always be prepared. Be ready at all times when asked about your relationship with Jesus. This assumes, by the way, that the Word of God is in your heart. He's saying, always be ready. How are you going to be ready? You don't know when it's coming, right? You ever have that day where you just got up on the wrong side of the bed, it's too late, you didn't get time in the Word, you didn't get time in prayer, that happens two or three days in a row, and all of a sudden you're in a crisis and you realize, my spiritual tank is empty. Like, it, it matters. That daily communion with God matters. You be ready all the time. Make a defense. He tells the Colossians, but your speech always must be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you're to answer each person in Colossians Four, six. Anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, what is the reason for our hope? This is the gospel. The gospel, this is the truth and the fact that religion doesn't save us. In the Roman Empire, there was no hope offered to its constituents through the Roman pantheon of gods. In the Jewish legalistic system of the law that the Judaizers controlled their people with, there was no hope in salvation. The wall in Jesus' day that had to be climbed over was the wall of self-righteousness. The wall that a man's strength and ability was bound to gave him no hope. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt hopeless when you've tried to achieve something, some level of righteousness in your own strength or your own ability? You want to feel hopeless? Try to find hope in yourself, in your own ability, because you know your own junk more than you know anybody else's junk. That's why you point out other people's junk, right? That's me. I'm say you. I mean me. Like we, it's easy for us to point out some junk in somebody else. Like if we focus on our own ability, we'll be hopeless. So what is Peter saying? The hope that is in you is not from you. It's in you, but it didn't start in you. 
We are different from every other belief system in the world in that we believe that there is a God who loves us enough to not only create us in his image, but in our fallenness through the redemption that Jesus supplies to reconcile us back to his image by putting his spirit in us, sealing us with that spirit and marking us with a new identity and calling us sons. The hope that is in us didn't start in us. It was put in us through the gospel. Peter says, fix your eyes on that hope. Think of that hope. Do it with gentleness and respect. There's too many offensive Christians. We don't need to join that team. Combative and argumentative when they speak to someone who doesn't hold the same faith. It's so important that Christians be careful to show gentleness and respect to others when they're sharing the message of hope. In verse 16 and 17, he closes this way. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. We live our lives in such a way that we don't give people reason to talk about us. We, we show that our greatest treasure is Jesus and that nothing else matters to us as much as fidelity and faithfulness to him. But out of that faithfulness to Jesus, our Lord, we will care for others. Peter understood this. Again, think about Peter's journey. Sanchez again. Peter had traced Jesus' steps and asked for, and as for Peter, he was arrested by the same Jewish leaders who had arrested Jesus. He stood before the same council as Jesus, and when asked, he gave a reason for his hope. Peter, the one who denied his master three times when Jesus was before the Jewish council, would now boldly declare to those same council members in Acts 4, but Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by what, which we must be saved. What a journey Peter had been on. So he would write to the Colossians, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was, to, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Peter understood Jesus post-resurrection in a different way than he understood him before the resurrection. In conclusion, the passage establishes the direction that Peter's now going to go for the remainder of the letter. He's going he's to shift towards um, the rest of, like, like from here on out, the remainder of the letter, he's going to shift towards this idea of suffering and being faithful in the way we endure that suffering, even when it's unfair and unjust. Like as Christians, you'll see a lot of times in Scripture, we ain't talking about what's fair, what's just. We're, we're learning how to endure the injustices of the world. And we fight for justice, and we particularly fight for the marginalized. But we need to understand um, two, two thoughts that summarize all of this, two thoughts that drive us at the main point of this text and then transition us to what the rest of the book is going to be about. Number one, we will be rewarded for suffering unjustly. As a Christian, we will be rewarded for suffering unjustly. This is a, a controversial maybe maybe thing to think about i remember a guy telling me one time i don't like that song i got a mansion just over the hilltop and i said why and he said i just feel like you're foc you're you're focusing on the material possessions of heaven and i was like I, and i was a young christian i remember thinking y'all know that song it's an old gospel song i remember thinking thinking 
huh? I don't, I don't, I went over my head. I did, like, like, but there is a reward that awaits. Man, I don't, I don't know what that reward's going to look like exactly, but I know it's going to give us, here's the thing, the rewards that we receive will give us an enriched worship experience of what we give back to Jesus. That's what the reward's about. The reward's about worship and oneness with Christ. So we'll be rewarded for suffering unjustly. And number two, because we are united with Christ by faith, we will be vindicated. Through the remainder of the letter, we'll be urged and encouraged to stand firm and to follow Jesus faithfully so that we might be armed with what we need to face suffering in this world, rooted in the grace of God. When you struggle in the face of persecution or you struggle when you see what is happening in the world around you, take hope and take heart and know that we will one day receive a reward for our faithfulness and we will be vindicated by the righteous judge who himself has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this, this evening you would take the weight and the gravity of Peter's words as, as he understood suffering so well, even ultimately would give his life for the faith that he held so fast to. And I pray that we would learn from him what it looks like to suffer in a way, in a manner that, uh, that is a testimony and a witness to others. And help us not to wish away the difficult moments, though, though they may be so difficult we can't bear them. I pray that, that even when we ask you to remove that momentary affliction and we think about the future glory that we're going to experience, Lord, that in those seasons of suffering or persecution that we would be drawn into deeper fellowship and relationship with you. Help us to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts and to love you more than we love anything this world offers us so that we might experience the fullness of your joy and your pleasure and your grace and so that we might love others well. In Jesus' name, amen.